one of the pastors here and I wanted to add my welcome to Aaron's and also invite you as well to, we have a picnic today. It's a little dreary and rainy outside, so um, we are going to be inside. It's not dreary and, I mean not dreary, it's not dreary and rainy in here. Um, so we're going to be at the other end and we're going to have a great time. The food will be in the lobby and we're going to enjoy fellowship together. Um, we do this not just because we like to eat, because we do, but we also like to be with each other. The church is the bride of Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a church family. And we also believe that that family and that, that the church is to be lived in relationship with each other. And so this is not just something we do to have fun and, and eat food. This is a way to build relationships so that we can have fellowship and deepen and grow in Christ together. So um, there is theological significance to a picnic. So we would love for you to be there. If you weren't planning for the picnic today, we still want to invite you to stay here we would love to have you join with us, so um, please plan to do so. Turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 8. We are continuing in our series in the book of Judges. If you are new here, you might be wondering, why Judges? Judges shows us our need for a Savior. It shows us really how things don't go well when we do what's right in our own eyes. And so what we've been reading about is Gideon so far in Judges chapter 6 and 7, how God took this weak fearful, timid person, this, this man who was hiding out and he empowers him and he enables him and God's so patient, so gracious with him. God clothes him with the spirit, he enables him to conquer and then now we come to see what is, how does Gideon respond. So let's read all of chapter 8, so hang with me, it's a long one but hang together. We're going to be reading all of chapter 8, this is God's holy inspired word and he intends for it to be encouraging to us today as well. Let's read it together. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went out to fight with Midian? And they accused him fiercely, and he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezar? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I'm pursuing after Zeba and Zamuna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zamuna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? And so Gideon said, well then. When the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east. For there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and, and Jogabaha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zamuna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zamuna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and the elders of Succoth, seventy-seven men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Salmuna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Salmuna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city 
And he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zebel and Zamuna, where are the men you killed at, at Tabor? They answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And then Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give. And they spread a cloak. And every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Jerubbabal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abiezerites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bareth, their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabal, that is, Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us see the truth of your word today. God, so often when we read accounts, Lord, we just read them as stories, but Lord, they're meant to communicate something to us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would communicate by your Holy Spirit what you would have us see. God, I pray that you would not just have this be a a story that we go away remembering, but that it would penetrate our hearts and our minds, that you would help us to walk away, not just looking at the word and then moving on, but Lord, applying it to our hearts, applying it to our minds, Lord, changing in response. Lord, that can only come from you, so we pray for this by your Holy Spirit, and we pray that, God, you would help me preach your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to take a poll as we begin. And I'm going to take a poll, and then when you answer, I want you to keep your hand up, because I want you to look around at the end and and see just who's holding their hands up, because I want to to get an idea, and I want you to get an idea of, of how many people can answer this question in the affirmative. So, um, how many of us who 
once had somebody who was either godly or um, was a, a Christian example that we looked up to, that we esteemed, that we respected, that later disappointed us in some significant way, that, that failed us or that sinned or that fell away from God or, or maybe you're just following him in name only. So how many here have had that kind of thing happen to them where you've looked up to somebody, respected somebody, they've fallen away, or they just are living for God in name only? So keep your hands way up there. Put all your hands up. Keep them up. Now I want you to turn and look around and keep your hands up so I can look around and see everybody here. Okay, that's the, the vast majority. You can put your hands down. That's the vast majority. I would say like 90% of the room at least. I'm grateful for the other 10%. That's really good. I pray that continues. But the reality is given that 90% of us have had that experience that one day all of us will have that kind of experience. Where somebody you look up to, somebody you respect, somebody who is an example to you in the faith will disappoint, will fail, will sin. Maybe fall away or just proclaim God a name only. That's what we see in this passage. And it's shocking. And it's really disappointing. You see, Gideon was this weak guy. He had, he had no confidence in himself. God called him. He had such patience and grace and favor on Gideon. And then he, he showed himself many different way, in many different ways to Gideon. And then he not only did that, he, he empowered Gideon. He called Gideon. And then he conquered for Gideon on Gideon's behalf. And then now we see... At the close, very shortly after all of that, and then for the rest of his life, Gideon falls away from God into apostasy, at best, proclaiming God a name only. And so when we read a story like this, we have to say, well, why did God put this here? I think God put this here so that we could understand how this happens, because that's a question for each and every one of us. How do people fall away? How, do they, how does somebody who's so used by God, how does somebody who's so empowered by God, so filled with the Spirit, conquers in God, does great things for God, how do they fall away? How does that happen? And then what can happen for us sometimes, too, is we begin to question our own faith. And wonder if they fell away, was it really genuine? If they fell away, how could that happen? Or if they fell away, then maybe I will too. And you begin to doubt. And the consequences of a public leader failing, they can dramatically affect those that they lead. And you don't have to look around far in the Christian world to find examples of people who have fallen away, and some in egregious ways. It tempts people to question their faith. It, it tempts people to question if what they believed was really solid enough to sustain them. If they too are in danger of falling away and if the person they esteem so highly fell away, then if they don't view themselves as highly as that, then what's to keep us from falling away? And so God provides accounts like this to actually show us how that happens it's not, it's not a shock in the sense of it just all, all of a sudden Gideon goes from serving God to not serving him. You see some things, subtle things crept into his life. He let things slide into his life in, in place of God. And so that he slid into this apostasy. He slid away from God. And that's what we see is, is Gideon sliding away from God. And it, and, it, and it begins subtly. You might not notice it at first. And it begins really with seeking man's approval. That's what we see in the first nine verses of the passage is that he's seeking man's approval. Why these two accounts? Why does this, why does this historian, this person who's writing this account of Judges, he's not just writing as a historian, he's writing for theological intent and he shows us two different people that, that Gideon interacts with. 
He shows us the Ephraimites, the really powerful tribe. Um, you know, his tribe was a half-tribe. That he was a, His clan was one of the smallest clans. If you remember from chapter 6 of Judges, he was one of the smallest families in the smallest clan and the smallest tribe. Well, the tribe of Ephraim was one of the larger tribes. You know, those were the, the, the popular, powerful people. They were the people who, who could do something to him, who had power over him. And so we see the way he interacts with them. But then we also see the way that he interacts with the people from Succoth and Penuel. These tribes across the Jordan who barely seemed to be a part of Israel, who weren't really influential, who weren't very significant, who were on the outskirts, the fringe. And we see how he treats them. And so we see that he's really relating to them differently based on what they can give to him or what they can do to him. That's what we see in this slide away from God, is that seeking approval, seeking man's approval, it leads away from God. Seeking, fearing man, seeking their approval, seeking to get something from people, it leads us away from God. But let me ask you, have you ever treated somebody differently based on their power? Have you ever treated somebody differently based on whether or not they had influence, based on their wealth, what you could get from them? That's what we find with Gideon in the first nine verses. See, the Ephraimites, they came to him and they're really upset. They're angry at Gideon. And they're angry because they're saying, hey, you didn't let us come and participate in the battle to begin with. And what they're really after is you didn't give us honor. You didn't honor us. Maybe they're concerned about the spoils too because this was a very large army. We find out later in this passage that it was actually 135,000 people in the army that, that Gideon earlier encircled. That God actually killed, set, the people who drew the sword, they set their swords against each other. And 120,000 people were wiped out and, and they were routed. And, and so Ephraim, they're angry. They're like, why didn't you let us come at first? You only let us come in afterwards and mop up. And look how Gideon responds. Gideon responds to placate them. He responds in a way that he's like, oh, he's, he's trying not to upset them. And he, he actually a little bit bends the truth here. He says, oh, my tribe is nothing and and, you know, our, our gleaning of our grapes, just, I mean, our, our whole grape harvest, our entire grape harvest for our little tribe, is, is, doesn't even compare to the gleanings after your grape harvest is already done, and there's just leftover kind of on the ground. Our harvest doesn't even compare to your leftovers. We're nothing compared to you. He's, he's kind of sucking up to them here. He treats them differently because they're powerful and they're angry. He doesn't want to anger them. He wants their approval. They're powerful. And then he reminds me, he says, well, you, you did engage them and you did what we could never do. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? He says, you know, God's already given the hands of, of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. The men who we saw in chapter 7, that, that he had sent word ahead to Ephraim, that Ephraim had, had cut them off, cut off the enemy's route, and, and they had carried the heads of Oreb and Zeb to him. Again, he says, I didn't, I didn't do anything in comparison to that. He was placating them because he was fearful of their influence, fearful of their power, what they could do to him, what they could do for him. He was starting to slip back into the fear of man. But what he could have said, what he should have said was, I didn't involve you to begin with because God told me not to. I didn't involve you to begin with because God actually said he didn't want anybody else to be involved because God wanted us to know that it's not our hands that save us, it's, it's him alone that saves us. 
He could have pointed back to the fact that, no, because God is the real victor here. God is the one who deserves the honor. You don't need any honor. You don't deserve honor. I don't deserve honor. God deserves the honor. And he could have stood up for what God had already commanded and been clear about that, but he didn't. He caved. He could have told them, God said that he didn't want us to boast in our salvation. That's why it didn't involve you. But he didn't. So he goes on his way in verse 4. We see that he goes on his way and he crosses over the Jordan. And he, he's on his way pursuing the kings of Midian. He's traveled a long way so far, he and 300 men. But they're exhausted. And I think of a map for you as well just to give you an idea why they were exhausted. So um, those little, little purple arrows, uh, they represent kind of gathering together. And a little orange circle way up there is where they encircled the 135,000 people with 300 people. God's great deliverance happened there. And then they fled. They pursued them over 60 miles down. The army split into two, and then Ephraim cut them off, little dotted line there. Ephraim comes in, they cut them off, and they kill Urab and Zeb. And then his 300 men, they go across the Jordan. They've gone like 60 or 70 miles at least by then, and they continue pursuing. It's, it's something around 100 to 150 miles total that they end up going in the end. So to say that they're exhausted is, is probably an understatement. These men have been fighting, or at least they watch God fight, and they've been running and pursuing for several days. You know, an army can travel at best 20 miles a day or so when there's good roads. There was no good roads here. And so they've been traveling, working hard, pursuing for several days, and, and it's doubtful that they had food with them. And they're running after them, so they're exhausted and they were pursuing hard. And so he comes up to the men of Succoth. And so we see, uh, how does he interact with a smaller, weaker group? A small, weak city that's not influential. On the outskirts, on the fringe. You know, maybe, maybe these are the goth kids in high school and Ephraim was like the jocks, right? Is that <laughs> more of a comparison? And so he, he goes to the men of Succoth and he says, Please give us loaves of bread to the people who follow me. For they're exhausted, not pursuing after Zeba and Zalmuna and the kings of Midian. And so, as a fellow tribe, it's, it's a reasonable request to ask of them, fellow people of God's covenant, fellow brothers and sisters. He could have, he was, it was good for him to ask that. He didn't ask him to take up arms when he could have, but instead he just says, hey, could you help feed us so we can go and pursue Israel's enemy? But look how they respond. In verse 6, they say, you know, are they already, do you already have them? Do you already have their hands? Maybe even meaning literally, have you already cut their hands off? Show us a proof. Have you already have them? Because if not, these are our neighbors, by the way. Zeba and Zalmunna, they would have been very close to where this city was. And so the city was probably afraid. They had, they, they had right to be fearful that if Gideon didn't conquer them, that there could be retribution from their enemy because they were right there. Gideon didn't have to live with these people who were threatening. And so they were reluctant but I think there's also something else going on here. I think there's a sign. Gideon's crossed over to where God never called him to go. And actually, God never called him to pursue this to begin with. In all of this chapter, we see that God's voice is silent. He doesn't command him to go there. No, Gideon's pursuing his own means. He's pursuing his own agenda. He's doing what seems right to him in his own eyes. And he's looking for the approval of other people. And so we see that there seems to be at least an indication that the Holy Spirit is no longer blessing Gideon's conquest because he's not even given a favor with his own people. Where before, um, 35,000 people came out when Gideon called and God sent them away. Now, he can't even get this small little city to respond. But Gideon's slowly turning from a liberator to one who pursues his own sense of justice with his own private army. 
So then he goes and he says, well, when, when I conquer them, I'm going to come back and I'm going to flail or thresh your flesh. It's, it's a very vivid threat. Um, a, a, a while back, we, I had an illustration of how, how threshing, what they would do is they have a sledge and it had a, a bunch of, of nails in it and they would, they would take the ox and they would drag this really heavy board with nails in it over the grain to kind of break things up and that's the kind of threat that he gives to them. He says, when, when I conquer, I'm going to show you and I'm going to come back and I'm going to thresh your flesh. It's brutal. He says, I'm going to do that with thorns and briars, the wilderness. He's, this Gideon, he's, he's no longer a fearful, timid man, but he's turning into an ugly man. He's gone from somebody who's relying on God's strength to somebody who's boasting in his own strength and defending his own honor. Why does he get upset here? He gets upset here because he feels offended. He gets upset here because he's wanting their respect. He's wanting their help. And when they refuse to give him respect and help, he gets angry. How, how do you respond? How do you respond when, like Ephraim or the jocks, you know, how do you respond when people who are in power are angry? Do you, do you appease? Do you seek to... Or do you stand up for God's word? Or how do you respond when people don't show you respect? Or they don't give you what you want? Do you get angry? Or do you trust in God? See, getting here, he's seeking man's approval in different ways. And it's going to result in different things. It's going to result in either giving in and, and, and really pretending to placate them, which often we can do too when we fear man, right? Or he goes the other way and he gets angry when he doesn't get what he wants, he doesn't get respect. And we can do the same thing. And so Gideon doesn't handle it well. He's not fearful and timid. He's going the other direction. He's becoming a bully, a tyrant. He's mistaken God's empowering for license to do as he see fit, sees fit and to domineer, to threaten others to get his way. And then we see he goes, so he leaves Succoth and he goes to the neighboring city and he goes to Penuel and he says, hey, how about, how about bread from you guys too? And, and they say... No, we're not going to give you anything. They answer in a similar way. And then when he answers them, he says, well, I'm going to come. When I come back, I'm going to break down your tower, your, your place of safety, your security, the place that you needed to watch out to make sure enemies weren't coming in. I'm going to come. I'm going to break that down. And so he threatens them. And he treats them with disdain because they didn't give him the respect that he deserved. Do you, you ever do that? How do you respond when people don't give you what you think you need? when they don't give you the respect you think you deserve, when they don't treat you in the way that you think you should be treated. You ever do that? I do. What's, what's the remedy? Oh, it's repentance. Because if we let it go unchecked, it will result in a slide away from God. And that's what we see with Gideon. This, the second indicator of slide with God is not only is he seeking man's approval, but, but he's also seeking his own agenda, and it leads him away from God. He's, not, he's no longer seeking God's agenda here. He's not seeking to deliver God's people from their enemy and to stand and watch God's deliverance, God's honor, God's name, so that people would know that it's not his hand to deliver them. No, Gideon is now seeking his own advantage. And we're going to see that from the answer that the kings Ziba and Zalmunna give to him. We're going to see what he was really after. Something's transpired between chapter 6 and 7 and chapter 8 that's motivated Gideon, and it's not pretty. He's got something else motivating him. He's got his own agenda now motivating him, and we're going to see that in just a moment. He moves from obeying God and seeking to deliver the nation for God to seeking his own agenda of deliverance. He goes and he pursues the enemy. And it's this, 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 this fast-paced pursuit and he goes all the way down. He's gone 60, 70 miles. And he, he goes across the River Jordan. And then he kind of goes around. And then he waits until they're in a place where they think they're safe. 
They think they're comfortable. They're in their own land, which is odd. Why is Gideon going to their land? God never told him to do that. But they're in their own land. They're in a place of safety. They think they're secure. They're not expecting that this band of 300 men would go across the river and pursue them. They're not expecting that at all. There's 15,000 of them remaining. And so Gideon, he does, though. He, he pursues around. He surprises them. And then now he panics them. He causes them to panic. Maybe they waited until they were all asleep. Maybe the enemy didn't post a watch because they figured they were safe. But Gideon's army attacks them. They go into panic. And then these two kings flee, and he captures them. We don't know what happens to all the 15,000. Maybe just they scattered everywhere, but he pursued after the kings, and he captured them because he was pursuing his own agenda here. And then, then he comes back, and then he carries out retribution. Now, it's important to note that these two cities, Succoth and Penuel, they, they were Israelite cities. It was from the tribe of Gad. They were, they were Israelite cities. They were his own brothers. And he goes back, and he takes these Zeba and Zalmunna, these prisoners, to show the men of Succoth. And before he gets there, he captures this young man, an Israelite boy. What is he doing? This isn't godly behavior. He captures one of his own people's young men and he kind of forces him to write down the names of all the elders, all the officials. What's he after? He's after vengeance. He's after his own agenda. He's wanting to take revenge for how he feels that they've been, he's been slighted and insulted, for how he hasn't been helped. He's wanting to make them pay. You ever want to make somebody pay for what they've done to you? You ever bitter, resentful, and you want to make them feel what you feel? You're pursuing your own agenda. You're sliding away from God. So he goes back to Succoth and he says, here are the men you taunted me about saying, did you notice, by the way, earlier the narrator didn't say that they, they taunted him. They just, it explains what they said, but he's carrying it. He says, you taunted me. And so he goes back to them and he exacts this painful vengeance on all the elders. It says he took thorns and briars from the wilderness and then he threshed their flesh. It was brutal. He left them bloodied. But he's not done. Look in verse 17 how he treats them. He says he broke down the tower of Peniel. He, he broke down the place that the Israelite city, a city he should have been cared about protecting, he broke down the tower, the place where they would watch for enemies coming, where they might have shot the enemies with arrows, where they, they used as a place of protection and safety. He broke down their place of safety. This is not godly behavior. Not only that, he was extreme. He killed all the men of the city. He makes widows out of a lot of, a lot of women, and he takes fathers away from all their children. Gideon here is pursuing his own agenda. This is not God's agenda. This is, this is not God's idea of vengeance. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Gideon says, vengeance is mine. I'm going to make them pay. And sometimes we, we feel that way in our own hearts. We want to make people pay because they slighted us, because they wronged us. They've not treated us the way that we think we deserve. And so we want to treat them how we think they deserve. But what did Jesus say to us about how to treat others? He says, when somebody strikes you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. When when somebody asks you to carry their load, go the extra mile. When they ask you for your outer garment, take, give them, give them your, your tunic too. Love others like you've been loved. And yet, 
Gideon has seen such mercy, such grace from God. But he, in turn, doesn't show them any mercy and grace. Why? Because he is aware of his own offense and his own agenda in protecting himself, preserving himself, his own rights. Isn't that true for us, too? That's how we can subtly slide away from God, protecting and preserving ourselves. And then look what he says to Zeb and Zalmunna. There's something telling here. These are enemies of God's people, Zeb and Zalmunna. They are foreign kings. They have killed many of God's people. They actually deserve justice here. But notice why Gideon is killing them. And this is actually a key to what agenda he's pursuing all along as he's crossing the river. Why does he do this? Why is he like a man on a mission? You know, it's like the movie Taken where Liam Neeson promises that, you know, I'm going to come for you. That's what he's doing here. And he decides to carry justice. At first he questions them. He says, hey, um, where are the men who you killed at Tabor? And you're like, what is, what are you, why is he questioning about the men at Tabor? Well, that was actually his hometown. That was, right, that was where his family was. And he was living in Ophrah, but his family was from Tabor. And so he says, hey, where are the men you, you killed at Tabor? And they answer him, well, as you are, so were they, meaning they looked like you. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. They, they looked like your dad. They looked like you, is what they're saying. And then Gideon answers, and we see his agenda. He's, he's pursuing vengeance. He's pursuing vindicating his own name, his own bloodthirst. He says, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. He already knew that. He already knew that they had killed him. He was trying to force a confession out of them. That's the reason why we see Gideon pursuing and going on this path of, of fury where he's going into a foreign land, going where God didn't come, treating people differently. And he says, as the Lord lives, if you would save them alive, I wouldn't kill you. There's something else telling here too. Gideon says, I would have extended mercy to you, God's enemies, if you didn't kill my brothers. And you think, I get that. But here's the thing, he never even hinted at the fact of extending mercy to his own people who just insulted him. He's pursuing his own agenda here. And he decides that they're worthy of the death penalty, which is true. And so he tells his, and, and Gideon is devolving. He is, he is becoming a horrible person. He tells his young son, who's too young probably to, probably hasn't killed anybody. And he tells his young son to draw his sword. But his young son's afraid. Now, it might have been an honor for the elder son to kill these kings, but, but Gideon should have known that this is, his son was not able because Gideon just before this was very weak himself. And so he doesn't do that. And, and I like the quote from Barry Webb. He says, Gideon has made himself what he is now in Jether, who refuses to be remade in his father's image, acts as a silent witness to that change that has taken place. Gideon has become a hardened, hard-hearted, cold-blooded killer. In just a few days, he's pursuing the approval of man. He's pursuing his own agenda. He's leaving his own path. And boy, bitterness and resentment will quickly get us there. Uh, pursuing our own honor, pursuing our own vengeance, pursuing our own glory. All of that will quickly lead us away from God. So Gideon gets up and he kills him himself. Killings are motivated, this personal vengeance. 
And then look what he does. He takes these golden crescent ornaments that were on the camel's neck. They would have been really costly, a show of wealth for these kings. He took them this costly spoil. He also claims all of the signs of their kingly royal, uh, the royalty for themselves, these, these purple robes. He claims all of their gold jewelry. He seeks his own. It's so tempting to seek our own. So tempting to seek our own vengeance, to seek to vindicate ourselves. What do you do? Same answer, we repent if we're doing that. Because if we let go and check, it results in a subtle slide away from God. And the third indicator we're going to see here of a slide away from God is not just seeking approval, seeking our own agenda, but seeking our own honor. Gideon's not just seeking vengeance. He's trying to honor himself when God's whole point and why he called Gideon and why he only had 300 of them conquer 135,000 is so that no one would think they did it themselves and that they wouldn't get the credit so that God would be honored and he would be seen as our deliverer. He is the one who saves. And yet Gideon is looking for his own honor in verses 22 to 27. I can identify with that. I like getting credit, but you know what? I'm, 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 I'm savvy enough to know that you shouldn't ever look like you're trying to get credit, so you can kind of downplay that. You ever do that? Oh, no, no, it was nothing. And what you're really thinking is, yeah, I, I did that. That was me. I baked that cake. I made that play. Oh, no, no, it was no big deal. Instead of just saying, you know, honestly, hey, thank you very much. That, that, I, I appreciate that. That was God working in me, and um, any ability I have is from God, and, being humble and yet actually accepting thanks. Oh, no, it was nothing. It was not me at all. But Gideon kind of does that. The, 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 the men come to him and they say, hey, rule over us. You've delivered us. You've saved us from the hand of Midian. And what's wrong with that? God is the one who saved them. They said, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also. They want him to set up a royal dynasty. They want him to, and his whole family, to have a dynastic rule. They, they effectively want him to be king. And they said that you've saved us. Now, how should Gideon have responded here? He doesn't, he says kind of lamely, I won't rule over you, and my son won't rule over you, the Lord will rule over you. But what he should have said was, I didn't save you. God did. That's why. That's why God will rule over you, because he is the deliverer. He's the savior. It was, we stood back and watched. We blew horns. We held uh, a flame, we held a torch, we blew horns, we smashed some jars, and God killed 120,000 people. God delivered you. God is your Savior. God gets the glory. God gets the honor, right? But he doesn't do that. He says, well, I, I'm, I'm not going to rule over you, my son either, but, but God will rule over you. So it seems, if it, maybe he's being godly here, but no, he doesn't point them to say, no, God saved you. He doesn't correct their wrong attribution of salvation to him. And how many of us don't love hearing that we are, we're rescuers, we're saviors, we're the heroes, we're the ones who've done things to, for people's good and makes you feel good about yourself and instead of saying, no, actually, anything I've helped you in is actually God's work. He's done that. So at first it seems noble, but he doesn't say, I didn't save you. And instead, look at what he does in response. In, in verses 24 to 27, look how he responds. He says, well, um, I won't rule over you, my son, but the Lord will. But hey, can I have some things from you? And how he is treating them is he's treating them like a king would treat vassals. He actually is wanting tribute from them. 
So he just, in word only, says, I don't want to rule over you. But then he demands or asks for tribute from them. And says, hey, well, but here's what I'm going to ask. You know, I don't want to rule over you, but I'm just going to ask for your tribute now. I'm going to ask you to worship me. I'm going to ask you to, to give me the honor that I'm due. And so they do. They give them all these gold earrings. They, they, the people they conquered were Ishmaelites on the other side of the Jordan, the enemies, the Midianites. They were descendants of Ishmael, and they would have worn gold rings in their ears and their noses as well. Um, they, they probably would have had um, all kinds of flashy jewelry with them. So it says the people of Israel who collected all this spoil, which, by the way, was the way that soldiers got paid then. They collected the spoil. They gave Gideon freely like they acknowledge, you are a leader, you, you deserve honor, you deserve our respect, you, we're your vassals. And so they give him, he says, the weight of all the earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. That's a lot of gold, by the way. That's somewhere between 35 and 75 pounds of gold. Somewhere between a million and two million dollars worth today of gold. That's a, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of gold. Because Gideon already has all the gold ornaments that he's taken himself from the kings and their camels. And he's already gotten their robes. He's, he's already gotten enough of his own spoil. But now he's, he's requesting to be treated like a king. But then he does something that's really awful. He's, he's seeking his own honor. And how do we know that? Because he takes some of this gold, probably not all of it, because 45 pounds would be too much to make a shirt out of, right? He makes this ephod. An ephod was what the high priest of Israel would wear. It was, a, it was a garment that was designated for the high priest to wear when he went in to perform his duties in the Holy of Holies. And in this, in this ephod was also this kind of a, a breastplate that was worn, and all the... the 12 tribes of Israel had different stones in it, and there was two pockets for the umen and thumen, which we don't really know what that is, but somehow these things would be used to, to consult the Lord's perspective on things. And so Gideon, he makes an ephod for himself. He makes an ephod as if he's saying, I want to be honored. I am going to replace the priesthood effectively. And he's, he's doing this in his home place. He's, the, the priesthood was in Shiloh at the time. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where the high priest would have been. And yet, he creates his own ephod. He creates his own system of honor and glory. And he wants people to come to him to seek God's will. Most likely here, he's wanting to function in some way as an oracle of God. And he sets it up. He puts it in his hometown, in his city in Ophrah. Not where God had placed his presence with the Ark. But Gideon kind of sets up his own worship system. He sets up his own place of honor. He wants to be one with all the answers. He wants to be people, one that people come to. He wants to be the one that are, uh, is honored. You ever had that desire? You want to be honored? You want people to come to you? You want people to see that you have all the answers? He puts it in his own city like some kind of statue and makes it some kind of a shrine similar to what the Mesopotamian cults around where they make a statue and they, they put an ephod on their false gods to be worshipped. And the very leader who's first commissioned by God, here's the, here's the irony. Here's how Gideon has slid away from God. The apostasy, the level of apostasy he now is in. God's first commission to Gideon was to tear down the idols in his father's household. To tear down the idols that his father had put up. That's the first thing God called him to do. What do we see Gideon doing now? He puts up his own idols. In a very short amount of time, he's, he's slid away from God as he's sought man's approval. He sought his own agenda. He sought his own honor. And he's sliding away from God into apostasy. As soon as he had the victory, 
He's achieving fame and wealth. He stops obeying God. What's he thinking here? You've got to be wondering, what, what in the world is he thinking? And then we see the responsible people of Israel. They all go in. They whore after it. God, God calls himself the husband of Israel. He is the rescuer, the provider. He is the protector of Israel. He is in a close relationship with Israel, so close, that he calls him their, his, his bride, and he's their husband. And so when Israel goes and worships a false god, it's, it's like Israel's committing adultery. And Gideon went quickly from saying that the Lord rule over him to setting up his own rule, his own system of worship, his own honor, setting himself up as important, his own opinion need to be consulted. If you find your place, yourself in that place, what's the answer? Repent. Turn. Confess that you want honor. Confess that you want people to look to you for answers. Confess that you have to have all the answers. Confess that you've, you're worshiping and wanting people to worship you. The first, fourth indicator of a slide away from God is seeking one's own wealth and a name. Seeking one's own wealth and a name. That's what he's doing. He's seeking his own wealth and he's seeking a name for himself. Now, now, wealth is not bad. It's amoral. But seeking after wealth, seeking to become rich, in the Bible, is, is, it's actually negative. Sometimes we think that, that success and wealth and fame, those things will give us happiness. But what we see here is he's seeking his own wealth and he's seeking fame or own name, his own name, and that leads him away from God and it leads the people away from God as well. And so in verse 28 to 32, Gideon here, he's accumulating for himself. Now, I can relate because, you know what, it's, it's, it feels easier if you're wealthy. It feels easier if you have things, you can do whatever you want if you have plenty of money. And so Gideon, he gets all of this wealth, and he accumulates it. But it, it's not ended there. Look in verse 30. It says Gideon had 70 sons. That's not all his children. He said 70 sons. They didn't count the daughters. He has 70 sons. He probably had at least 140 children. That's a lot of kids, by the way. I thought six was a lot. Right? Try 140. I thought six kids was expensive, right? I mean, what they say the average cost per kid in a lifetime is something like four or $500,000 per kid is what it costs, whatever. I don't know, something like that. Maybe I made that up. I don't know. But uh, let's say it's 200000 at, at the lowest. Okay, we'll try times 140. You've got to be pretty daggone wealthy. Also, no one lived like that except for kings. No one lived that way. Only kings accumulated to themselves that much wealth and that big of a family. And get this, it says, for he had many wives. Oh, well, didn't Deuteronomy 17, 17 say when, when God is talking to Moses and he says, hey, when you have a king, make sure they don't have many wives. Make sure they don't accumulate to themselves lots of gold. And what do we see Gideon doing? The exact opposite of God's commands. He accumulates many wives. He accumulates much wealth. And the narrator is drawing our attention to that. This is direct disobedience to God. And then he, he, he doesn't stop there. In verse 31, it just shows you how Gideon is seeking his own wealth and a name and his own gratification. He's not seeking wealth for the good of Israel. He's seeking wealth to, to, to gratify himself. He's, he's wanting more women to gratify his own desires. And we see in verse 31, he takes a concubine. Now, it would have been common for wealthy people to take a concubine 
It was a slave that they would buy and they would bring them into their household and they'd be kind of like a secondary wife. But this is something even worse than that, which was still something God never approved of. But this is worse. It says, he, in his concubine, who was in Shechem? But wait a minute, where's Gideon living? Gideon's living in Ophrah. Shechem's at least six or seven miles away. And she's not living with him. He's not treating her with respect. He's not bringing her in even as a secondary wife, which was abhorrent to God to begin with. He's just using her for his own gratification. He's accumulating to himself for his own personal gratification and satisfaction. And so she bears him a son. And, and listen to what he calls him in verse 31. It says, and he called his name Abimelech. And you're like, oh, well, what's wrong with that? Well, get this. This is the guy who earlier said, no, I won't rule over you, nor will my sons. God will rule over you. But I'm going to name my son Abimelech, which means his father is king. <laughs> he names his, his son, his father is king. It shows you that it was really just to play. It was really just for show that he said, I don't, don't want to rule over you. And then he ends up naming his, his own son, my father is king. And he was, this epitaph of Gideon is essentially that this once fearful, timid man who God patiently and graciously called and empowered, in the end, he turns away from God. He slides away from God and he does what's right in his own eyes. He led the people into sin. He lived self-indulgently. Instead of God using God's gifts to lead and care for others, he looked after himself and he lived like a king. We're not meant to emulate that. This is not be like Gideon. Instead of turning the people back to God, he turned the people to himself and a false god of his own making. He left the people of God not only worshiping a false god, but they went back after all the other gods because his false god didn't get them anything, so they might as well worship all the Baals too. He couldn't deliver. You see, he turned away from the true deliverer to himself. And he, he became complacent too. He just lives for 40 years. We don't see him doing anything positive. We don't see him leading in any significant way. We don't see him acting on God's behalf. We just see he's living in this opulent, self-indulgent, complacent lifestyle, seeking success and wealth as the answer to his problem, seeking his name. You ever do that? You think success will be the answer to your problems? I know, I, I think that sometimes. Like, oh, if I could just be successful. If we could just, if we just have some business on the side, we'll make a ton of money, then everything will be okay. If the church could grow like to a thousand people, maybe, maybe then they would be successful and, and then everything would be good or, you know, whatever you think in your mind. You, you ever seek success and think that that's the answer somehow? Seek wealth as the answer. Seek self-accumulation, self-indulgence. You think that's the answer to happiness, to fulfillment in God? Do you think that's going to draw you closer to the Lord? In almost every case in the Bible, when people accumulate to themselves, for themselves, or self-indulgent, Success is actually rarely a blessing and most often is a curse. You know, Jesus said it's, it's easier for a camel, a pretty big animal, to go through the eye of a needle, that can't happen, than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. What's he saying? If you're, if you're pursuing wealth, you're pursuing riches, it's hard to see that you need God. And so what you, you some kind of disdain in your own life of, why is God keeping success from me? Oh, because God wants you to keep him in him maybe? Or why, is, why, is it, why do I feel like I'm dependent? Well, that's a good place to be. 
is dependent. Did you ever seek your own success or wealth or self-indulgence, seek your own name? What's the answer? Repent. If we let it go unchecked, it will slide us away from God. Let's say overarching lesson we learned about what leads us to slide away from God really is seeking one's own, just in general. Seeking your own it results in idolatry and apostasy, complacency that leads to a falling away from God. Success is not a blessing for Gideon here. It ends up leading to his downfall. He becomes overconfident. That's what happens when you have success. You become overconfident, or you think that you got your own success. That's how Gideon acted. He acted as if he was the one to get his own success. He acted as if his own strength or his own wisdom or his own abilities got him there. He, he began to believe his own press, that he's deserving. He, he valued his opinions more highly than others. He thought more highly of himself than other people. And, and, and let me tell you, it's easy to get to this place. Where do you find yourself? He thinks his own hand brought him victory. He does what seems best to him. He thinks, I know best. And he's hesitant to listen to other people because he's got all the answers he knows best. If you find yourself in that place, repent. I'm tempted in those ways all the time. He seeks his own comfort, seeks to become self-indulgent. Watch out if that's you. Success is a far bigger temptation than weakness and need ever is. In his weakness, God became his strength. Now in his strength and success, God is not needed, or so he thinks. Relying on his strength is a subtle temptation. You know, our, our life, we, we rarely begin with rampant idolatry. It's not how it began for Gideon. Our sin begins with confusing God's blessing with God's permission to live however we want. We, we confuse blessing with thinking that we means we're wise or more mature. We've somehow earned it on our own or we deserve honor and glory and fame and fortune. We subtly confuse God's empowering and gifting with our own ability. We can identify with Gideon in a lot of ways. His success, it was meant to serve and to help and to, to lead the people of God to glorify God, to, to honor him. But he turned from glorifying God to glorifying himself. He, he became self-indulgent. Instead of leading him to serve, other gods, serve God as a true king, he acted like their king. There's a song that I, I like to sing, and it's probably true, too. It's by Tom Petty called It's Good to Be King. In your own way, it's good to be king, king for a day. We all kind of like the idea of being king, right? Uh, we're more often like the people of Israel, though, than we are like even Gideon. All those bad things about Gideon, those seeds are in our own hearts, too. But you know how the people of Israel responded? That's where we are as well. They're quick to want the spoils, so are we. We're quick to want the credit like the Ephraimites. We're quick to turn from glorifying God and worshiping him for his victory to worshiping the leaders that he uses. That's why sometimes we walk away from God because we weren't serving God to begin with. We were actually just impressed with people and we thought the people can give us what we want. We weren't looking to God to begin with. So when people walk away from God who are our leaders we esteem, we're tempted to walk away from God because we might not have really been following God. We've been following them. And that's what the people are. They, they're quick to turn to worshiping the leader, easily worshiping at the idols of the leaders, they fail to acknowledge God. They fail to give God thanks. Isn't that what happens in Romans 1 and 2? They were interested in their own honor. They were proud. 
preserving their own comfort. They didn't display the kindness in, in feeding their brothers and sisters in need. The people of Succoth and Penuel, well, they weren't right either. They, they didn't help their brother in need. Instead, they kept stuff to themselves and they worried about their own safety. And that's what we do sometimes too. People glorify God's instruments instead of glorifying God. They worship the creature instead of worshiping the creator. You know, God had given Gideon faith and courage and he had been patient with him and then he used it for his own benefits. And, and God almost seems absent from this chapter except for the flippant use of his name by Gideon. God chose him as weakness, but he forgot who he really was. He was a man who was weak who needed God. And that happens to us too. We can forget who we really are. We are weak people who need God. We are weak people who are unable to conquer our enemies on our own. We need God. And let's never forget that. Let's not forget that we rely on God's strength, God's ability. Let's not get engaged in our own agenda, pursuing our own glory, pursuing our own honor, our own vengeance. You know, when, when Gideon was tim timid and humble and he feared God and he listened for his voice, there was victory. When he, when he started relying on his own self, things went really bad. God was so patient. He was so gracious with Gideon. And, and now at the end, Gideon ends up being this impatient, ruthless, slovenly kind of self-indulgent leader. What does this show us? We need, we need a better leader. We need a king who won't be self-serving and self-indulgent. We need a king to lead us who's going to obey God's commands. We need a king who's patient and merciful towards us. We, we need a king who won't require payment from us, but instead is willing to sacrifice for us. And here is the good news. That's what we have in Christ. He's not self-serving. He's not self-indulgent. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to lay his life down for his friends. He perfectly obeyed all of God's commands. He didn't seek his own glory. He didn't seek his own honor. He actually didn't even avenge himself here on the earth, which he could have, and it would have been just for him to do. He was patient. He was merciful. He put up with his disciples when they were absolute morons. He puts up with us. He's patient and merciful towards us. He doesn't require payment from us. Instead, he sacrifices and pays on our behalf. Jesus is the true king that we need. He's the one who, in his death, was acknowledged as the king of kings, the king of the Jews, our king. Let's look to him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for teaching us about you, about ourselves, and about living for you. Lord, protect us and preserve us. Keep us from sliding away from you. Bring the good gift of conviction, Lord, but pray, Lord, that you would keep us from condemnation, that we would see that there's cleansing from all of our sins because, Jesus, you have already taken the punishment for all our sins. Let us live joyful lives of freedom in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, thanks for being with us. We are so 